Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, contestants, here's the clue for today's final. This three-piece group from New York City once toured with Madonna, support Tibetan independence, founded a record label, a magazine, a clothing line, and a film company. Worked as record producers, support the New York Knicks, are tireless philanthropists, accomplished actors... Finish the clue! ...have a thing for Carvel ice cream cakes, were once a punk band, refused to let their songs be used in commercials, were sued by ACDC, sued British Airways... Make them stop! ...had a dog named Rufus, hung out with one of John Lennon's kids, once employed Dr. Dre, and... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, but time's up. The answer is the Beastie Boys. That's Beastie Boys. Thank you, contestants. You're all losers. Alex, you bastard! I want my money! Get him! This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. For an entire generation of music fans... Well, two generations, really. The Beastie Boys were always there. And now that they're no longer with us, there are a lot of people who feel like there's a void in music. But we'll always remember their contributions. And there were a lot of them. This is part one of Remembering the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys and So What You Want from their third album, their comeback album, and I'll explain what I mean by that later, called Check Your Head. This is a band that started as a goof by three guys from well-to-do New York families. All they wanted to do in the beginning was drink beer and meet chicks. When they finally had to call it quits when one of them died three decades later, they were esteemed members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and considered to be one of the most important acts of all time in two different genres. It's a hell of a trip. How did they get there? Well, let's start at the beginning, which means going back to 1981. That's when a spiky-haired kid, a teenage drummer named Michael Diamond, the son of a successful art dealer from the Upper West Side, formed a group called the Young Aborigines. He was always going to punk shows, and one night at a gig by DC's The Bad Brains, he met Adam Yock, a 17-year-old kid from Brooklyn who knew how to play the bass a little bit. Okay, he knew how to play two notes, but hey, it was punk rock, right? You didn't need more than two notes. Yock started hanging out at Young Aborigines rehearsals before he was asked to join when the regular bass player left the city for the summer. The group played two gigs, both on the same night, and they packed it in. But within just days, the Young Aborigines regrouped as the Beastie Boys. Now, officially, according to legend, that stood for Boys Entering Anarchistic States towards internal excellence. But if you ask me, that sounds like some weird reverse engineering. It was Mike Diamond, Adam Yock, guitarist John Berry, and drummer Kate Schellenbach. The first official Beasties gig was August 15, 1981, in John's Loft at 100th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. The occasion was Adam Yock's 17th birthday. It's the first time he ever got drunk. After that, they gigged as a hardcore act around New York, supporting the Dead Kennedys and working the stage at CBGB. Then they got bored and broke up. But it was at about this time when a friend named Dave Parsons approached them with a proposition. He already owned a record store in the East Village called Rat Cage, but he was also thinking of starting up a record label. 
He got the joke, and he wondered if the Beasties were interested in doing something. And yeah, they were. So the Beastie Boys reformed, and everyone gathered at this studio called 171A. Unfortunately, the place was about to go out of business, and the landlord was threatening to sell all the gear so he could collect some back rent. This gave the Beasties all of two days to record eight songs, which they did, and then they broke up again. An engineer at the studio named Scott Jarvis rescued a tape machine and managed to mix those tracks in his bedroom. The result was an LP called Pollywog Stew. It came out on Ratcage, and the date was November 20th, 1982. The Beastie Boys from late 1982 without Adam Horowitz, but with guitarist John Barry and also drummer Kate Schellenbach. The song is called A-Grade on Mojo and is one of their earliest recordings. And it's also one of the few songs from their hardcore era that survived throughout the rest of the band's career. All right. November 13th, 1982, exactly a week before Pollywog Stew came out, the Beastie Boys played a show in the drama department of Bard College. Also playing that night was a group called The Young and the Useless, which featured a singer named Adam Horowitz, the son of a famous playwright. And the Beasties liked him a lot. When John Barry quit near the end of 1982, apparently there was a bit of a meth problem, Adam Horowitz was drafted in to take his place. This is when the Beasties began to explore the possibilities of fusing punk with rap and breakdancing, which was getting big in New York at the time. And in March 1983, they decided to get one of these new ideas down on tape. The concept was really simple. First of all, they made a prank phone call to a local Carvel ice cream store. Carvel sold an ice cream cake called a Cookie Puss. The guys then took that tape of the phone call, added some bits from a Steve Martin comedy album called A Wild and Crazy Guy, and put the whole thing to some beats. The result was something totally different from anything that was happening on the New York hardcore scene. Yo, man, Cookie Puss there. Who? Cookie Puss. I want to speak to Cookie Puss, man. No, nobody here by that name. The Beastie Boys with Cookie Puss, another release on the Rat Cage label, this time from August of 1983. It was the title track of a four-song EP that got some good college radio airplay, and it was a release that made them some serious money in a weird backdoor sort of way. British Airways allegedly used a sample from that song in one of their commercials without permission. British film director Jeremy Healy explains how he came to use a track called Beastie Revolution in that TV spot. I did another commercial for British Airways, which was a worldwide commercial, and it was a big money thing. I put this bit of this Beastie Boys record in it. It was a white label I had. didn't have any information. I didn't know who they were or what they were or anything. It was before License to Ill, so the year before, whatever, 84 maybe. And I just thought it was brilliant. It was before they were successful or anything. I just sampled a bit of it. It was like, yum, yum, you know, it was like a comedy vocal thing. Space guy goes on, onto the moon. He goes to the basically like the Star Wars bar. Right, when that bit comes on, I dropped in this piece of this doom, 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 you know. So the Beastie Boys heard it in New York in the cinema and sued British Airways. It was the first money they ever made out of the music. When I went to New York the year after that, they were like, hello, thank you, <laughs> you know. The Beastie Boys won a judgment for $40,000, which they then used to rent an apartment in rehearsal space at 99 Christie Street. But the sampling thing cut both ways. 
I'll explain that in a minute. But first, we need to talk about two lineup changes. First of all, this guy from NYU that came aboard as a DJ, he called himself DJ Double R. His real name was Rick Rubin. Rick helped introduce a little more hip-hop into the boys' sound. He also suggested that the guys start dressing more like street rappers. So he went out and bought them matching Adidas track outfits, got them to turn the baseball caps around, and added some chunky gold chains. He also kind of forced Kate Schellenbach out of the band. It didn't take long for her to get fed up with Rick. She considered him to be childish and really, really sexist. And very soon, she wanted out. Here's where we finally get down to something that looks like the modern-day Beastie Boys. Three guys down front with a DJ in the back. Rap and hip-hop became more and more important to the Beastie sound. And at the time, it was pretty weird. I mean, three white MCs? But two people recognized the possibilities. The first was Russell Simmons, a would-be musical entrepreneur. The second was, believe it or not, Madonna who, through a mix-up with Simmons, ended up with the Beastie Boys as her opener for her 1984 Like a Virgin tour. She wanted Run DMC, but they were too expensive. The Beasties were much cheaper, so they got the gig. By November 1984, the Beasties had signed to Def Jam, a new record label co-founded by Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. The label's second single was a Beasties track called Rock Hard, but it was soon withdrawn because it contained some illegal ACDC samples from the song Back in Black. They had neglected to ask permission, and even if they had, they wouldn't have got it because ACDC was categorically against any kind of sampling. So the single had to be withdrawn, and was a big collectible for years. The Beastie Boys with Rock Hard, with the original illegal ACDC samples intact. That's from 1985, and like I said, it had to be withdrawn from sale under threat of heavy legal action. However, that single was reissued in Europe with ACDC's Blessing in 2007. By that time, the Beasties were huge and could talk one-on-one -on -one with ACDC as peers. They'd softened and said, Aw, oh, mates, do what you want. We don't care anymore. So they did. The next single did much better. It showed up on the soundtrack of a terrible film called Crush Groove. She's on it, originally from the soundtrack of a film called Crush Groove. The release date was September 12th, 1985. By the time that 12-inch was released, Adam Yock was known as MCA. Adam Horowitz was using the handle AdRock, and Mike Diamond was shortened to Mike D. They had also found lots of ways to annoy people. In fact, their drunken party frat boy attitude caused most people to absolutely hate them. But that was about to change. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of the Beastie Boys from late 1986 through all of 1987. Let me set this up. Rap and hip-hop started filtering out of New York in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And outside of those areas, those neighborhoods, it had a hard time gaining acceptance. Rap crap was a phrase that was thrown around a lot. There was a huge divide. Urban areas versus the suburbs. People of color versus white. Rockers versus rappers. As hard as it is to believe today, a sizable majority of the music market, the industry, and fans looked at rap as a fad, something that would quickly die out. And then everybody would get back to the serious business of singing and playing their own instruments. None of this scratching and sampling nonsense. That wasn't real music. And it didn't matter that there were genuine stars, genuine musical geniuses. Run DMC, Curtis Blow, Africa Bambata, Grandmaster Flash, LL Cool J. The scene and the sounds were just not taken seriously. I know, I know, I know, but if you were there in the early and mid-80s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Then here came the Beastie Boys. November 19th, 1986, an album called Licensed to Ill. Musically, it was one of the first successful fusions of rap, hip-hop, and rock. Not only did rap fans like it, but the record was a huge hit with the alternative crowd, and a huge hit with a significant portion of the mainstream rock crowd. I mean, Kerry King of Slayer played guitar on it. Slayer! He took time out from recording the band's Rain and Blood album to play on it. Socially and culturally, it bridged this huge gap between black and white music fans. Before the Beastie Boys, these two groups of fans were miles apart. And yeah, it is kind of suspect that it took a bunch of white rappers to bring them together, but at least it got the job done. Commercially, it became one of the fastest-selling debut albums in history. In fact, License to Ill was the first rap record to ever hit number one on the American album charts. It's still one of the top-selling back catalog items of all time, selling hundreds of thousands of copies every year. All of these things opened some very big doors between the world of rock and the world of rap. But consider this. License to Ill was not the Beastie Boys' first choice for a title. Can you imagine... There's an alternate universe thing going on here. Can you imagine how different things would be if the Beasties had got their way? They wanted to call this record, Don't Be a Faggot. Ugh. Okay, yeah, that was regarded as something of a frat boy novelty song, especially after the video came out. But it was also something more. A song that rocked with big guitars and heavy drums, but also featured rapping instead of singing. Adam Yock and his buddy Tom wrote the song in response to rock songs like I Want to Rock by Twisted Sister and Bang Your Head from Quiet Riot. This was supposed to be a parody of those types of songs, but that was lost on 95% of the people who heard it. But let's face it, the video, with cameos from LL Cool J, Rick Rubin, and MTV's Tabitha Soren, was too much fun for anybody to really take the song or the Beastie seriously. And think about this the next time you see it. There was almost no budget for the shoot. All the whipped cream used in the pies? It was scrounged from dumpsters behind supermarkets. All of it was sour and rancid and smelled awful. Of the 13 tracks on License to Ill, seven of them were released as singles. 
This was the fourth, and it introduced millions of non-rappers and those not into house music to the sounds of the legendary Roland TR-808 drum machine. While the Beasties found millions of new fans with license to ill, they also made millions of new enemies. A group of politicians in Britain wanted them banned from the UK. They thought it was dreadfully disgusting that they invited female members of the audience up on stage to dance in cages, and they certainly didn't like the giant motorized inflatable penis that popped up during the show. The British tabloids really had it out for them. One went so far as to carry a false story about the band laughing and taunting a group of dying children, kids with terminal leukemia. That never happened. The paper made up the whole sick story. But by the time some of those kids came to the band's defense and tried to set the record straight, the damage had been done. At another show in Liverpool, this was May 10th, 1987, a bunch of thugs who thought that they were going to teach the Beasties a lesson started throwing cans and bottles at the band. The Beasties responded by returning the missiles using baseball bats. Unfortunately, one girl got hit in the eye and Ad-Rock was arrested for assault. The whole show lasted 10 minutes before it devolved into a riot. Remember how I said that Kerry King of Slayer played on License to Ill? Well, here he is. And if you're an ACDC fan, note how similar the riff structure is to their song TNT. That is not an accident. And if you're a Motorhead fan, any similarity between the title of this song and Motorhead's No Sleep Till Hammersmith is purely intentional. No sleep till Brooklyn. No sleep till Brooklyn. The Beastie Boys and No Sleep Till Brooklyn. License to Ill was a massive success. It was the fastest selling record Columbia Records, the major that distributed it for Def Jam, had seen to that point. And it went on to sell somewhere north of 10 million copies in the U.S. alone. And for years and years and years, it was a top-selling catalog item. 10, 15 years later, it was still moving at least 500,000 copies a year. It was one of those rare evergreen sellers. But the License to Ill tour was very rough on the Beastie Boys. By the time they got home, they wanted to kill each other. So it was decided that everyone would go off and cool down for a while. Adam went off to Hollywood to act in a couple of films and then relaxed with his then-girlfriend Molly Ringwald, while the other two guys worked on various musical projects. Then the relationship with Def Jam blew up. They wanted a new album right away, but the Beastie said, no, forget it, we're burned out, we need to recharge. So Def Jam started holding back royalties, money that should have rightfully gone to the band. That fight dragged on for months before the Beastie Boys broke free and signed with Capitol Records. They gave the group total freedom when it came to making another album, which was awesome. But Capital was expecting another license to ill. What they got was something unexpected and something very ahead of its time. And that was a problem. I still remember the day the second Beastie Boys album came into the radio station. Everyone was hoping, expecting a record that was just as much fun and just as goofy and wild as License to Ill. And I still remember putting it on the turntable and going, uh, what's this? It was July 25th, 1989. Hey, 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 
Hey ladies, the first single from the Beastie Boys' second album, Paul's Boutique. That was a far cry from Fight for Your Right and Girls and Brass Monkey and Paul Revere and No Sleep Till Brooklyn. I mean, it was good, but where was all the frat boy goofiness that we come to know and love? And where were the big guitars? Sales were dismal. And after two singles, Capitol Records stopped promoting it. It was such a stiff that the president of Capitol was fired for allowing the band to be signed to the label. And his wasn't the only head that rolled. Commercial failure has that effect. We just didn't see it at the time. But this record was so advanced, both artistically and technically for its day, that we just didn't get it. Well, at first anyway. But the rap and hip-hop community was totally blown away by Paul's Boutique. Here's the truth. The Beastie Boys grew up fast. They wanted to make the most creative record they could, and not one that was blatantly commercial. The easiest thing in the world would have been to come up with more songs like the ones they did for License to Ill, but they didn't want to do that. They knew that if they did, they'd just be pigeonholed for the rest of their careers, and their career would be very short. So, with the help of a production team called the Dust Brothers, the Beastie Boys spent close to two years meticulously crafting an album that sampled no fewer than 105 different songs. But they're all so short and so expertly woven into the fabric of each of the songs that they're there and then they're not. It makes for fascinating listening today. And back in the summer of 1989, it was ten times as fascinating for some people. Let's go back to Hey Ladies for a second. Sixteen different songs are rated for this track. For example, the most obvious is this line from the suite's Ballroom Blitz. And the title of the song itself is from Curtis Blow's Party Time. And if you listen closely, you can hear snippets from James Brown, The Commodores, Cool and the Gang, and Edwin Starr. The complexity of this mix of samples and original music was staggering for its day. Having learned from their experiences with British Airways and ACDC, the Beastie Boys knew that they had to clear all the samples that they used, and they did. They paid for the right to use those snippets at a total cost of about $250,000. That, believe it or not, is rather reasonable when compared to what it would cost to do something similar today. Paul's Boutique came out in the time before a bunch of big lawsuits involving sampling pushed the cost of clearing samples way, way up. There's almost no way anyone could stitch together a similar album in today's environment. The samples would cost in the millions of dollars, which is why we're unlikely to ever see an album like this ever again. There was a second single from Paul's Boutique. There were eight samples contained therein, including material from James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, Sugar Hill Gang, and even some drums from a song by a southern rock band called Black Oak, Arkansas. Today, we recognize Paul's Boutique as an absolute masterpiece. It is a landmark album in the history of hip-hop, sampling, producing, and recording engineering. But back in 1989, it was a commercial disaster. So what were the Beastie Boys to do? On part two of Remembering the Beastie Boys, we'll follow them through the 1990s, into their hiatus in the early 21st century, their post-9-11 years, and through to the end of their career with the death of Adam Yock. It'll be quite a ride. 
Meanwhile, I have a website, a ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every single day. It also comes with a daily newsletter that you can subscribe to for free, and I highly recommend that you do that if you want to keep up with the newest and coolest and weirdest music news. Uh, trust me when I say that there isn't another newsletter like it. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.